happening, men's groups, women's groups, outreach groups. I'm always amazed at uh, Church of Our Size of all the, the things you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for those of you who are new, uh, we do this every now and then, is we have uh, some free binders. Those of you either come new or you've been here the last few weeks and you're going to start coming receiving the teaching, we have binders. And when we make the, the message notes, uh, we three-hole punch them for you. So you can put them right in the binders. So, Jerry, if you could hand out binders to those who have none and want one, and also mm, hand out some notes, I'm going to guesstimate about that much, and uh, that would be perfect. So, all right, gather the extras so that I have enough for next service, and please put them right by my chair here. Well, how's everybody doing this morning? You doing good? It is uh, great once again to be here with you, and uh, we're going through Hebrews chapter 11 for those of you who brought your Bibles or uh, want a good point of reference. Uh, for those of you who came last night, I want to let you know that LifePoint Church set a new record in the history of our church. We officially ate 150 pounds of pork. Come on. I mean, is that, are we not a Gentile church or what? I mean, that is, you know, <laughs> 150 pounds of pork and 10 chickens. So, <laughs> I know, yeah. It was like an Old Testament sacrifice last night. <laughs> we had a burnt offering and everything. <laughs> so, uh, no, it was a wonderful time. Uh, and uh, for those of you who missed it, uh, keep your eyes on the radar for when we do stuff like this again. It, it uh, really, everybody dressed up the church. My many thanks to everybody who helped and put stuff on and, and did all that. That's, uh, it was just wonderful. So, awesome. All right, well, let's uh, go ahead and pray and we'll get right into it. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the word of God. Uh, Jesus, we pray now, uh, God, that we would begin to have conversations. Lord, this isn't a time to just sit and listen and to be instructed as if this was Bible school. Lord, although there's an element of that, God, this is also a time where we begin to have conversations with you uh, as thoughts get presented, as, as, as uh, ideas come forward. God, that we would be actively uh, talking with you and learning from you and being shown things by you, Lord, that our story would get caught up in the greater story of what God is doing on the earth today. And so, Lord, as we open up your word, uh, let our hearts be opened as well. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> Question for you. How much do you think this bottle of water weighs? How much does it weigh? One pound? One pound 12 ounces? Maybe two pounds, actually. You know, I'm kinda, a pint weighs a pound. You're absolutely sure of that? Are you sure it's a pint? It's, it's actually 1.05 pints. So it would be a little more than a pound, wouldn't it? But I think Eric took a sip out of it. So maybe we'll, I'm going to go with a pound, right? Who cares how much this water weighs? <laughs> Nobody does. <laughs> Where's your, what's your point, Tom? Where are you going with this? My point is this. Right now, this water weighs almost nothing. I could hold it up. I could throw it. I could play with it. 
But about an hour from now, it's going to weigh a little bit more, isn't it? I mean, the actual weight may not change, but my arms are going to get kind of tired. If I hold this thing all day and not drop it, it's going to weigh even more. And if you tell me, Tom, you cannot put this water down for one whole week, by the end of that week, do you know what will happen to my body? You know what my central nervous system will do? It will paralyze my arm. I will literally go paralyzed if I hold this one-pound bottle of water for a week. And I want you to think about that as I tell you a little story this morning, a story about Anna and Eleazar. Our verse this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29, where the writer of Hebrews says that by faith, the people of Israel passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. To get kind of some of the setting of this story, you've got to go back all the way to the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 2 where the writer writes, the Israelites groaned in their slavery. They were slaves to Egypt and their cry for help and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and so God looked on the Israelites, and he was concerned about them. Now, let's face it. We're talking about events that are 3,400 years ago. These are, you know, cultures, times, customs, things that really only people like Jerry Bazell would probably even remember. So, <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> So in order to kind of put this in perspective, I want to tell you a story. It's the story of Anna and Eleazar. They are a young couple who have just went through an arranged marriage, and they are now beginning their, eking out their new life in the land of Goshen, officially as slaves to the mighty Egyptian empire. Life as a slave laborer, they wake up in the morning, and Anna begins to look at Eleazar's hands. And Eleazar's hands are chapped like leather from all the work he's done. They go to give each other a good morning kiss, realizing that their lips are equally as chapped under the harsh conditions of Egypt. And as Eleazar leaves this morning, he has a heavy pack on his back. A heavy pack on his back. As he goes out and he looks at what he's doing, he's building these great, big, huge pagan shrines to pagan gods. And he begins to realize and wonder, where is our God, the God of the Hebrews? Why does he not have a shrine? But all of a sudden, the workday begins, and he begins to think, I have heavy brick on my back to go with the heavy pack on my back. Anna begins to leave the front door. She's getting water. She's getting straw. She's getting all of the things to make the community thrive. But Anna, too, is very afraid. Every now and then, people, especially young girls, they go missing. We're not quite sure where they go or what they do. But when they come back, they're never the same. It's a life of fear. 
each step, not knowing what the next step may bring. All of a sudden, Eleazar comes home. He says, Anna, I have something to tell you. Something has happened. This man named Moses, who we kind of heard about, he's gone. He, he, he came back, and all of a sudden, he's stirring up a lot of trouble with the government, and we're not sure what's going to happen. And Eleazar has heavy doubts on his heart. Confusing events begin to happen. The river Nile begins to turn the blood. All these flies are coming everywhere, which we can relate to, right? And the cows are dying, and, and all these things are happening. And, but e Egypt's magicians are matching them. But Moses is doing some amazing things. We don't know what's happening. We're confused what's going on. And all of a sudden, you get a knock at the door. You always shudder. Whenever there's a knock, you flinch. And as you open the door, you realize it's your friend, your Hebrew friend that you work with. He's married and he has a son. And he says, hey, there's the news is going out that we're all to slaughter a lamb and we're to put the blood on the four corners of the doorpost. Protect our sons. But you and Anna, you have no son. So you look at him and say, well, I don't necessarily need to. I don't have a son. The friend says, can we stay with you? We don't have a doorpost. We're still sleeping out in the fields. But if we are with you, the doorpost will protect our son. Eleazar is a reasonable man. He says, sure, come on in. And pretty soon in the morning, you began to hear the cries and the wails as Egypt begins to mourn the loss and the death. And all of a sudden, you hear quickly, pack up, pack up, we're going. And to your surprise, some of your Egyptian friends who are from the Askar class, one of the lowest class of Egyptians, just above the slaves, they begin to say, can we go with you? We've seen what your God has been doing in this land, and we'd like to go with you. We'll give you everything we have for passage with you. You say, sure, come along. You begin to walk. It's hot, it's dusty, you're tired, and you have a heavy pack on your back. But instead of going to the north, Moses does the dumbest thing you could ever think of. Takes you to the southeast. First of all, there's no good water in the southeast. It's all full of alkali. Second of all, there's no place to hunt game. Third of all, that's not the quickest way out of Egypt because there's this big thing called the Red Sea right in the middle between you and Canaan. And Moses is leading around and leading around, and you're just confused. And you begin to say, Moses, these packs on our back are getting heavier and heavier and heavier. And then Pharaoh, Pharaoh begins to look out onto his great tombs, mourning the loss of his son. And he says, I have great shrines. They have tents. I have an army. They have a prophet. I have money. They've got whatever they're carrying on their back. And he gathers his army, and he's going to wipe them all out. And you may think, now why would a man wipe them all out? Egypt had so many slaves. They had so many people. Even the loss of just shy of a million wouldn't make a dent in their economy. Pharaoh's mad. He doesn't want to bring them back. He wants to kill them all. So he begins writing. All the while, Moses seems to be confused. First, God leads them to the southeast. 
Then God tells them to turn back a little bit. Then he leads them again to the southeast. They're kind of going in a zigzag pattern, which makes no sense until they end up at Pi Elyon. And there they are camped when news comes. We see dust and smoke on the horizon, and we're not sure what it is. And as Pharaoh's army begins to become more and more apparent, Pharaoh begins to think to himself, their God may have saved them from Egypt, but he cannot save them from me. And all of a sudden, everybody begins to drop their packs. They have nowhere to go. To the north are chalk cliffs they'll never be able to scale. To the south is the desert, certain death. To the west lies Pharaoh's army, and to the east is the Red Sea. So all of a sudden, dropping their packs, most of Israel begins to just stretch their arms out, hoping a sword will just take them quickly. Some of them began to grumble to Moses. Moses, why did you bring us out into the desert to die? It would have been better, better if we just died as slaves in Egypt. What are you doing here? Why did you do all this just to kill us now? It was just then that God speaks to Moses. Keep on going. Stretch out your hand and watch the sea part before you. And at first, Mo Moses is thinking, I ate too much pizza last night. I'm not sure what in the world. I mean, we have never seen God part a sea before. But just then, Moses remembers the story of Noah. This would not be the first time that God delivered a people out of the mighty waters. So confidently, he walks toward the edge of the beach and he lifts his staff, and simultaneously, not instantly as some people think, but simultaneously, a strong wind begins to, begins to blow upon the waters all night. And just as Pharaoh's army is gaining, they begin to walk through as on dry land. When they get to the other side, they look helplessly as the Egyptian army is engulfed by the waters. And they've been saved. What have they been saved from? A brutality and a cruelty we can't imagine. A devaluing and a dehumanizing of people we can't imagine. A disrespect and a disregard for life that would make Adolf Hitler look like Mickey Mouse to a degree we can't even imagine. No less than 10 times had God come to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. No less than 10 times did God say, Pharaoh, I'm taking my people away from you. Let them go. And as Pharaoh stood at that, at that beach at the parted sea, he was literally at the precipice of his life. God had warned him over and over and over, don't do this. But in his pride and in his rage, Pharaoh thought one thing. God may be able to do many things, but I doubt he can do this. And as Pharaoh began to ride through, all heaven wept as the waters swept over an army. It didn't need to die. It died because of one man's pride. 
because one man couldn't let it go. While on the opposite shores, another man's army was saved through his humility, believing one important fact, if God got us into this mess, he can get us out. Even if he has to part seas, oceans, and continents. Amen? Amen? So we come back to the glass of water. Because the mess that Moses was in, the packs that they had carried on their back all their life, and now they're about to carry through the deserts of Egypt, the Sinai deserts, the wilderness deserts, they had seemed heavy and heavy and heavy enough. But then I think of the verse in Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor. Remember, they were slave laborers. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and have heaviness all around you. He's saying, come to me. If you're laboring and toiling and you're heavy, You've got heavy news, heavy packs on your back. You're making heavy bricks. There's heaviness all around you, and it's just heavy, heavy, heavy. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, and you will find rest for your souls. That's Matthew chapter 11. The stresses and worries of this life are a lot like this glass of water. So many of us, when we're young, we can take it. I can hold this thing, man, I'll, I'll hold it like this if I have to. But as you get older, it begins to jiggle. It gets stronger until now you're using your other hand to hold it up, and now you're using your leg, and all of a sudden, we end up in life like this, holding up all the stresses and worries on our own power, not realizing that the reward of faith is this. You take it down and say, God, I need your help. God, we got our backs up against the Red Sea. God, the armies of Pharaoh are coming. God, there's cliffs to the north. There's certain death to the south. God, I am in an impossible situation. No matter where you are at, God is still the God who can get you out of impossible situations. Amen? Amen. Point number one, if you're looking at your notes, if God got you into a mess, he will get you out, often teaching us something about himself. So many of us, when we hear the Red Sea story, let me ask you a question. How many of you in the Red Sea story, you think the parting of the Red Sea is the big miracle you remember, right? I mean, come on, that's, that's, that's craziness. I mean, could you imagine the wall of water? No one had ever seen something like that before. That is a miracle of miracles, to say the least. I mean, there are people who have never even read the Bible who know about the parting of the Red Sea. Amen? But I submit to you, that was not the greatest miracle of this story. In fact, that was nothing compared to what I'm about to tell you. Think about this. Moses was leading just shy of about a million people out of Egypt. It is estimated by strategists that it would require 15 tons of food per day to feed this many people. Imagine a freight train 
two miles long, filled with food, having to come in every day just to feed all of those people in a desert with no food and no water. You think the Red Sea was fate? Moses taking them out of the lush Nile Delta into the harsh desert wilderness, that is faith like we can never imagine. It would require for a million people about 11 million gallons of water per day to drink, wash, do whatever else they need to do with it. Each night as they made camp, they would need a campground the size of one-third of the state of Rhode Island, about 200 square miles. Do you think Moses had all of this calculated before he left Egypt? Do you even think Moses was that good? Come on. He admits to God, I can't even speak in front of Pharaoh. How are you going to calculate the exodus of a million people? The answer is this. Moses trusted that as long as God was leading them, he would provide for their needs. That's the reward of faith. The cost of doubt and unbelief and trying to do it all myself and be the man. And the cost is we end up old like this and we're still trying to hold all the stuff of the world. And it's crippling us. And pretty soon one day, like a hammer and a nail, it just knocks you straight in the coffin. The reward of faith is this, God, 11 million gallons of water, 1,500 tons of food. You can part the Red Sea till you're blue in the face. That's my big problem right now. What happens when we get to the other side? The Sinai Desert is no better than the Eastern Desert before you got to the Sinai Desert. There's the reward of faith, that as long as... As we trust God where he's leading, he'll get us out of the mess, even if the mess seems impossible. I want you to look at our lives today. Sometimes the numbers look like they're stacked against us. Sometimes we may be wondering where we're going to find what we need. You know what the worst part is? When life really becomes messy, we really become needy. And when we really become needy, Sometimes even our closest friends don't want to be around us. Amen? But whatever those needs might be, are they anything approaching 1,500 tons of food a day? I know some of you have like six, seven, eight kids, and you may think you go through 1,500 tons of food a day, but I promise you, you're not. 11 million gallons of water. I know some of you got big pools. Believe me, the biggest pool in the world doesn't have 11 million gallons. If God took care of Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness, do you really think? I mean, think about it. For 40 years, God sustains a people with food, water, clothes, shoes, and health. In a desert that can offer none of those. Did it for 40 years. Think about your need for a moment and ask yourself, do you really think God is nervous when it comes to providing for your need compared to the needs he provided for for 40 years in the wilderness? Matthew would say in chapter 6, look at the birds of the air. 
They do not sow or reap or store in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds all of them. Are you not much more valuable than he? Here's a good phrase to remember. As long as God is in the lead, he will provide for your needs. As long as God is in the lead, he will provide for your needs. The only time you really need to be nervous or worried is when God isn't in the lead. Because he's given us the free will to meander in all the deserts we want. This is an interesting statement. The oceans of the world contain 340 quintillion gallons of water. I won't even tell you what a quintillion is. You can't imagine this number. But 340 quintillion gallons of water. In Isaiah chapter 40 says, God holds all the waters in the hollow of his hand. The earth weighs six sextillion metric tons. God says in Isaiah chapter 40, it is merely dust on his scales. The known universe stretches 200 sextillion miles. In Isaiah chapter 40, that says that God measures the width of the universe by the length of his hand. Scientists claim there are about 100 billion galaxies and that in each one of those galaxies, there's about an additional 100 billion stars. You know what Isaiah chapter 40 says? 100 billion times 100 billion, and God calls each star by name. When God leads us into tough circumstances, He's not only the God who can part seas. He's not only the God who can take care of a million refugees. He's the God who has named 100 billion times 100 billion stars. Why do I say this? It's important to know who we're dealing with. It's important to know who we're asking to provide. His credentials check out. Amen? Amen. Point number two. If you got into a mess, Sometimes God leads you into a mess, right? I mean, let's face it. Anna and Eleazar, they never asked to be in the spot where they were between Pharaoh's army and a Red Sea. They never asked to be there. They're probably thinking to themselves, you know what? Why did we leave Egypt? It may have been bad, but at least we had a full life in some cases. So if God gets you into the mess, he will get you out, and he'll show you something about himself. The Israelites came up out of the Red Sea, and they knew, wow, God can part seas. That's amazing. God can provide. I mean, they, they, they learn stuff about God. But sometimes we get ourselves into messes. Think of Jonah. He got himself into his own mess, and he got tossed over the boat. Even when we get into a mess, God will still get you out, but this time he's going to teach you something about yourself. He gets into the mess, he's teaching you something about himself. You get into a mess, he's going to show you something about yourself. And hopefully we learn from that. They turned on their leader. In, Egypt, in Exodus chapter 13, they said, Moses, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in this desert if only you would have left us there. See, they only thought they had two options. But in their fear and anger, they left God out of the equation. If it all depends on us, we're sunk, right? It all depends on us. We're sunk. Uh, I read this poem once from a man named Bishop Kenneth Almer. He is a, a very well, 
very good order from uh, Los Angeles. And he had this, this poem that I thought really just puts this point well. He says, you see a clump of marble in my hand is just a glass, but a clump of margo, marble in Michelangelo's hand will get you the magnificent statue of David. You see, it all depends on whose hand it's in. A cello in my hand will get you some squeaky noise, but a violin in Yo-Yo Ma hand will get you the music of a master. A basketball in my hand is worth about $29.95, but in Shaquille O'Neal's hand, it's worth about $30 million. It just depends on whose hand it's in. A tennis racket in my hand is a dangerous weapon, but in the hand of Venus Williams, it's a Wimbledon champion. A golf club in my hand means four, but a golf club in Tiger Woods' hands is a golfing champion. A rod in my hand may be able to fight off some dogs, but a rod in Moses' hand can part the Red Sea. A slingshot in my hand is just a kid's toy, but a slingshot in David's hand can bring down the giants in your life. Spit and clay in my hand, I can make you a beautiful mud pie. But spit and clay in the hands of Jesus will cause a man who cannot see to see once again. You see, it all depends on whose hand it's in. So I ask you, he said. Whose hand are you in? You by yourself? Maybe just another ordinary Joe. But once you are in the hand of God, you become one of the most powerful weapons in the world. Amen. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, But we are merely have this treasure in jars of clay to show the world that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Amen? Amen? Number three, if you try to get out of the mess yourself, you may be in over your head and not know it. That's the part where Pharaoh's ar army comes in. Can we all agree they were in over their head and did not know it? You didn't get that, but you will in a moment, <laughs> if you really think about that. A few uh, years ago, I owned the only car I'm ever proud to have said I've owned. And I, I got a great deal. It was a Ford Mustang. And uh, I took it with the youth group to go hiking in the mountains of Washington, in the Cascade Mountains. And, and, and Washington has no, you know, the thing I love about California, they have organized everything. Some of you guys hate this. I love it. Everything's organized. You know, when you go riding your ATVs, it's all organized. When you don't, you know, it's just in Washington, there's no organization. So when you gotta want to go hiking, you just park on the side of the road. There's no parking lot. There's no tags. There's no visitor center. There's no maps. There's no nothing. You just got to know where you're going. That's why so many people, when you find out, oh, another person is lost on a mountain, what state is it usually in? <laughs> right? It's in Washington or Oregon. They're the same way. So one time I, I'm going hiking with these kids from the youth group uh, when I was in the uh, downtown church in Seattle. 
And I parked on this. Uh, actually, I, I didn't drive my car. I drove the church van because I was over 25. I had one of the younger kids drive my car. And I parked the van, you know, where I parked it. He parked my car on the side of the road. We went hiking, and I came back. My car was gone. And my first thought was, somebody stole my car. I was furious. So all of a sudden, this kid, August, goes, uh, Tom, you better come over here. My car was not stolen. It slid down the side of the hill about 10 feet. So you couldn't see it as you were walking up, but the closer you got, it was the worst sight in the world to see your car on the side of, you know, tipped like that. It was the only car we had at the time, too, and I was still making paint on it. Well, I thought to myself, we can do this. We can do this. Another kid came, had a pickup truck, and he had a, 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 a what do you call that? Not a winch. No, he just had a regular uh, uh, tow hitch. And, uh, but he had, uh, he had, he was a water skier, so he had a whole bunch of water skiing handles, stuff like that. So I said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to tie these things around the, the axle, the tire. You gun it, and, and as you go across the road, it'll bring the car up and up where I can get in, start it, and I'll hit reverse, and then we'll get this up, and we won't have to call a tow truck. It would have been four hours to get a tow truck up there. We were out in the middle of nowhere. So he's like, are you sure, Pastor Tom? I'm sure. I am mechanically inclined. We can do this. <laughs> Ken, will you stop laughing? <laughs> so I... So he's like, all right, but I don't want to tie. You tie everything to your own car because I, I don't want you coming back saying the knot you tied was wrong. So I, I tie it up. I get everything ready. He guns it. What happens? Not only does the rope snap, it takes my fender and a taillight with it. <laughs> well, boom, it just goes, you know? <laughs> and I'm sitting there watching this, and the kids are like, oh, Pastor Tom, oh, oh my gosh, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? And I'm just kind of shocked for a moment. I look at him and I go, that was totally awesome. Did you see that? I mean, this thing, my bumper just flew like a half a mile. It was just totally shut. The odd part of the story was a tow truck was going to do another tow on the mountain. They had driven past us. And then what happened, the guy fixed his car or whatever. He's coming back. I mean, about a half hour after we're into this whole mess. And literally puts a wench on it. The beauty was it was drivable. Uh, and, and that was the end of that story. But if that doesn't prove point number three, I don't know what does. <laughs> Last part, point number four. When you come to the place when you feel the impossible, God is okay with us asking him to take over. At some point, the stresses, the worries, the fears, the doubts, the questions, all of these get heavier and heavier and heavier. They may not when we're young, but as we age, we're not as mentally tough, not physically tough, not as emotionally tough. And all of a sudden, what we think is holding feels like it's on our head, just nailing us down. When we begin to face those impossible things, even if you have not prayed in 40 years, even if you have not been in church in forever and a day, 
even if you have hated God all your life, even if you have had it out with God year after year and you think you are bitter enemies, no matter where you are at, any time, any place, God is okay with you saying, you know what? Even after all the fighting, God, will you still help me? And he will. That's grace. That's what the New Testament teaches. That's grace. Even after the Israelites grumbled against Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? Why did you bring us? We should have just stayed in Egypt. Let us kill him there. At least we wouldn't have had to march miles out of the city. Why did you do this move? Why did you do this, God? Why has it been 400 years we haven't heard you? Why this? Why are we building pagan shrines? Where are you, God? Where, why, after all of that angst, all their complaining, all their whining, all their groaning, all their anger toward Moses and God, God still parts the Red Sea for them. What is that? That's grace. That's grace at its finest. A good friend of mine, and he's a good friend, but he's not a believer. He thinks, he, he can't believe that I'm still doing what I'm doing. I think I baffle him. But I, lo I love having him as a friend. And once he told me, he said, you know what the problem with all you Christians Y'all think you're morally superior to everybody else. He said, it just makes me sick. How, how spiritually snobby all of you get. And I looked at him and I said, you know what? If you believe that, you are sadly mistaken. What? He goes, no, seriously. And he starts to argue with me. I said, no, 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 no. You are sadly mistaken. You, me, all of us. We're all in the same boat. What does Romans chapter 3, verse 23 say? All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no not one, is what Paul would say. And I looked at him and I said, you know what? The door getting into heaven just has one phrase on it. For sinners only. For sinners only. If you think we think we're morally superior, then we're not going there. Because we'll see that sign and walk right past that door. The door to eternal life is marked for sinners only. That's why there's no room for boasting. Did the Jews have anything they could boast about when they crossed the Red Sea? No. Because it was God who was glorifying himself by delivering his people. They weren't on the other side going, ah, you know. They, they were on the other side going, oh, my goodness. The last man made it out just in time before the thing caved in. There's nothing to boast about, nothing to brag about. There's no moral superiority. You may say, well, then what is there? It's simply this. Anyone, anywhere, anytime 
can say, God, save me from Egypt. God, help me from this impossible mess I'm in. God, you got me into this mess. You need to get me out of it. I can't hold that anymore. And when God knocks on the door, we open up the door and say, God, I judge myself. I need your help. I'm not going to die, show up in your throne room and say, I deserve to be let in. Now open up the gate. God, I need your help. In the words of Bishop Ulmer, nails in any other hands would be just ordinary nails. But nails in the wrist of Jesus purchased eternal life for the whole world. Amen? Amen. One final thought. And this is for those of you who are like, yep, Tom, I've heard it. I believe it. Great to come every week and be reminded of it. Rear Admiral Grace Harper once said, a ship in port is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. She was speaking of ships. A ship in port is safe, but that's not what ships are meant for. Christians in the pews are safe, but that's not what Christians are for. 